0: Section 9 of The Singing Bone of The Adventures of Dr. Thorndyke by R. Austin Freeman This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Old Lag, Part 1, The Changed Immutable Among the minor and purely physical pleasures of life, I am disposed to rank very highly that feeling of bodily comfort that one experiences on passing from the outer darkness of a wet winter's night to a cheerful interior made glad by mellow lamplight and blazing hearth and so I thought when on a dreary November night I let myself into our chambers in the temple and found my friend smoking his pipe in slip at ease by a roaring fire and facing an empty armchair evidently placed in readiness for me. As I shared my damp overcoat, I glanced inquisitively at my colleague, for he held in his hand an open letter, and I seemed to perceive in his aspect something meditative and self-communing, something in short, suggestive of a new case. I was just considering, he said in answer to my inquiring look, whether I am about to become an accessory after the fact. Read that and give me your opinion. He handed me the letter, which I read aloud. Dear sir, I am in great danger and distress. A warrant has been issued for my arrest, on a charge of which I am entirely innocent. Can I come and see you, and will you let me leave in safety? The bearer will wait for a reply. I said yes, of course. There was nothing else to do, said Thorndyke but if I let him go, as I have promised to do, I shall be virtually conniving at his escape. Yes, you are taking a risk, I answered. When is he coming? He was due five minutes ago, and I rather think—oh, yes, here he is. A stealthy tread on the landing was followed by a soft tapping on the outer door. Thorndike rose, and, flinging open the inner door, unfastened the massive oak. Dr. Thorndike, inquired a breathless, quavering voice. Yes, come in. You will send me a letter by hand. I did, sir, was the reply, and the speaker emptied, but at the sight of me he stopped short. This is my colleague, Dr. Jervis, Thorndyke explained. You need have no... Oh, I remember him, our visitor interrupted in a tone of relief. I have seen you both before, you know, and you have seen me, too, though I don't suppose you recognize me, he added with a sickly smile. Frank Belfield, asked Thorndyke, smiling also. Our visitor's jaw fell, and he gazed at my colleague. In sudden dismay, and I may remark, pursued Thorndyke, that for a man in your perilous position, you are running most unnecessary risks. That wig, that false beard, and those spectacles through which you obviously cannot see are enough to bring the entire police force at your heels. It is not wise for a man who is wanted by the police to make up as though he had just escaped from a comic opera. Mr. Belfield seated himself with a groan and taking off his spectacles, stared stupidly from one of us to the other. "'And now tell us about your little affair,' said Thorndyke. "'You say that you are innocent.' "'I swear it, Doctor,' replied Belfield, adding with great earnestness. "'And you may take it from me, sir, that if I was not, I shouldn't be here. It was you that convicted me last time, when I thought myself quite safe, so I know your ways too well to try to gammon you.' "'If you are innocent,' rejoined Thorndyke, "'I will do what I can for you, and if you are not, well, you would have been wiser to stay away.' "'I know that well enough,' said Belfield. And I'm only afraid that you won't believe what I'm going to tell you. I shall keep an open mind at any rate, replied Thorndyke. If you only will, groaned Belfield. I shall have a look in in spite of them all. You know, sir, that I've been on the crook, but I've paid in full. That job when you tripped me up was the last of it. It was, sir, so help me. It was a woman that changed me. The best and truest woman God's earth. She said she would marry me when I came out if I promised her to go straight and live an honest life. And she kept her promise and I have kept mine. She found me work as a clerk in a warehouse, and I have stuck to it ever since, earning fair wages and building up a good character as an honest, industrious man. I thought all was going well, and that I was settled in life, when only this very morning the whole thing comes tumbling down about my ears like a house of cards. What happened this morning, then? asked Thorndike. Why, I was on my way to work when, as I passed the police station, I noticed a bill with the heading Wanted, and a photograph. I stopped for a moment to look at it, and you may imagine my feelings when I recognised my own portrait taken at Holloway and read my own name and description. I did not stop to read the bill through, but ran back home and told my wife, how she went down to the station and read the bill carefully. Good God, sir! What do you think I'm wanted for? He paused for a moment, and then replied in breathless tones to his own question: "The Camberwell murder." Thorndyke gave a low whistle. My wife knows I didn't do it continued Belfield, because I was at home all the evening and night, and what use is a man's wife to prove an alibi? Not much, I fear, Thorndyke admitted, but you have no other witness. Not a soul. We were alone all evening. However, said Thorndyke, if you are innocent, as I am assuming that the evidence against you must be entirely circumstantial, and your alibi may be quite sufficient, have you any idea of the grounds of suspicion against you? Not the faintest, the papers said that the police had an excellent clue, but they did not say what it was. Probably someone has given false information, but the, a sharp rapping at the outer door cut short to the explanation, and our visitor rose, trembling and aghast, with beads of sweat standing upon his livid face. You had better go into the office, Bellfield," while we see who it is, said Thorndyke. Like, the key is on the inside. The fugitive wanted no second bidding, but hurried into the empty apartment, and as the door closed we heard the key turn in the lock. As Thorndyke threw open the outer door, he cast a meaning glance at me over his shoulder, which he understood when the newcomer entered the room, but it was neither than Superintendent Miller of Scotland Yard. "'I've just dropped in,' said the Superintendent in his brisk, cheerful way, "'to ask you to do me a favour. Good evening, Dr. Jervis. I hear you're reading from the bar. Learned counsel soon, sir, eh? Medico-legal expert Dr. Thorndyke's mantle going to fall on you, sir.' "'I hope Dr Thorndyke's mantle will continue to drape his own majestic form for many a long year yet,' I answered. "'Though he is good enough to spare me a corner, but what on earth have you got there?' For during this dialogue, the superintendent had been deftly unfastening a brown paper parcel, from which he now drew a linen shirt, once white, but now of an unsavoury grey. "'I want to know what this is,' said Miller, exhibiting a brownish-red stain on one sleeve. "'Just look at that, sir, and tell me if it is blood, and if so, is it human blood?' "'Really, Miller said Thorndyke with a smile, "'you flatter me, but I am not like the wise woman of Baghdad "'who could tell you how many stairs the patient had tumbled down "'by merely looking at his tongue. "'I must examine this very thoroughly. "'When do you want to know?' "'I should like to know tonight,' replied the detective. "'Can I cut a piece out to put under the microscope?' "'I would rather you did not,' was the reply. "'Very well. You shall have the information in about an hour.' "'Very good of you, doctor,' said the detective, "'and he was taking up his hat.' preparatory to departing when thorndyke said suddenly by the way there's a little matter that i was going to speak to you about it refers to this camberwell murder case i understand you have a clue to the identity of the murderer clue exclaimed the superintendent contemptuously we have spotted our man all right we could only lay hands on him but he's given us the slip for the moment who is the man asked thorndyke the detective looked doubtfully at thorndyke for some seconds and then said with evident reluctance i suppose there is no arm in telling you especially as you probably know already. This with a sly grin. It's an old crook named Bellfield. And what is the evidence against him? Again the superintendent looked doubtful and again relented. While the case is as clear as as cold scotch, he said. Here, Thorndyke, an illustration of this figure of speech produced a decanter, a siphon and a tumbler, which he pushed towards the officer. You see, sir, the silly fool went and stuck his sweaty hand on the window, and there we found the marks, four fingers and a thumb, as beautiful prints as you could wish to see. Of course, we cut out the piece of glass and took it up to the fingerprint department. They turned up their files and out came Mr. Belfield's record, with his fingerprints and photograph all complete. And the fingerprints on the window pane were identical with those on the prison form. Identical. Hmm, Thorndike reflected for a while, and the superintendent watched him foxily over the edge of his tumbler. Oh, I guess you are retained to defend Belfield, the latter observed presently. Mm, to look into the case, generally, replied Thorndike. Oh, you know, and I expect you know where the beggar is hiding, continued the detective. Belfield's address has not yet been communicated to me, Sir Thorndyke. I am merely to investigate the case, and there is no reason, Miller, why you and I should be at cross purposes. We are both working at the case. You want to get a conviction, and you want to convict the right man. That's so. Belfield's the right man. What do you want of us, Doctor? I should like to see the piece of glass with the fingerprints on it, and the prison form, and take a photograph of each and I should like to examine the room in which the murder took place. You have it locked up, I suppose. Yes, we have the keys. Well, it's all while we regular, letting you see the things. Still, we've always played the game fairly with us, so we might stretch a point. Yes, I will. I'll come back in an hour for your report and bring the glass and the form. I can't let them go out of my custody, you know. I'll be off now. No, thank you. Not another drop. The superintendent caught up his hat and strode away. The personification of mental alertness and bodily vigour. No sooner had the door closed behind him than Thorndyke's stolid calm changed instantaneously into feverish energy. Darting to the electric bell that rang into the laboratories above, he pressed the button while he gave me my directions. Have a look at that bloodstain, Jarvis, while I am finishing with Bellfield. Don't wet it. Scrape it into a drop of warm, normal saline solution. I hastened to reach down the microscope and set out on the table the necessary apparatus and reagents and as I was thus occupied, a latch-key turned in the outer door, and our invaluable helpmate, Polton, entered the room in his habitual, silent, unobtrusive fashion. "'Let me have the fingerprint apparatus, please, Polton, and have the copying-camera ready by nine o'clock. I am expecting Mr. Miller with some documents.' As his laboratory assistant departed, Thorndyke rapped at the office door. "'It's all clear, Belfield,' he called. "'You can come out.' The key turned, and the prisoner emerged. "'looking ludicrously, woe-begone, "'in his ridiculous wig and beard. "'I am going to take your fingerprints "'to compare with some that the police found on the window.' "'Fingerprints!' exclaimed Belfield, in a tone of dismay. "'They don't say they're my fingerprints, do they, sir?' "'They do indeed,' replied Thorndyke, "'eyeing the man narrowly. "'They have compared them with those taken "'when you were at Holloway, "'and they say that they are identical.' "'Good God!' murmured Belfield, "'collapsing to a chair, faint and trembling. "'They must have made some awful mistake.' but are mistakes possible with fingerprints. Now look here, Belfeld, said Thorndyke. were you in that house that night or were you not? It is of no use for you to tell me any lies. I was not there, sir. I swear to God I was not. Then they cannot be your fingerprints. That is obvious. Here he stepped to the door to intercept Poulton, from whom he received a substantial box, which he brought in and placed on the table. Tell me all you know about this case, he continued, as he set out the contents of the box on the table. I know nothing about it, whatever, replied Bellfield. Nothing, at least, except— Except what? demanded Thorndyke, looking up sharply as he squeezed a drop from a tube of fingerprint ink onto a smooth copper plate. Except that the murdered man, Caldwell, was a retired fence. A fence, was he? said Thorndike, in a tone of interest. Yes, and I suspect he was a narc, too. He knew more than was wholesome for a good many. Did he know anything about you? Yes, but nothing that the police don't know. With a small roller, Thorndyke spread the ink onto the plate into a thin film. Then he laid on the edge of the table a smooth white card, and taking Belfield's right hand, pressed the forefinger firmly but quickly, first on the inked plate and then on the card, leaving on the latter a clear print of the fingertip. This process he repeated with the other fingers and thumb, and then took several additional prints of each. "'That was a nasty injury to your forefinger, Belfield,' said Thorndyke, holding the finger to the light and examining the tip carefully. "'How did you do it?' A tin opener into it, a dirty one too. It was bad for weeks. In fact, Doctor Sampson thought at one time that he would have to amputate the finger. How long ago was that? Oh, nearly a year ago, sir. Thorndyke wrote the date of the injury by the side of the fingerprint, and then, having rolled up the inking plate afresh, laid on the table several larger cards. "I am now going to take the prints of the four fingers and the thumb all at once," he said. "They only took the four fingers at once at the prison," said Belford. "They took the thumb separately." I know, replied Thorndyke. but I am going to take the impression just as it would appear on the window glass. He took several impressions thus, and then, having looked at his watch, he began to repack the apparatus in its box. While doing this, he glanced from time to time, in meditative fashion, at the suspected man who sat, the living picture of misery and terror, wiping the greasy ink from his trembling fingers with his handkerchief. Bellfield, he said at length, you have sworn to me that you are an innocent man. And are trying to live an honest life. I believe you, but in a few moments I shall know for certain. And God for that, sir, exclaimed Belford, brightening up wonderfully. And now, said Thorndyke, you had better go back into the office, for I am an expecting Superintendent Miller, and he may be here at any moment. Belford hastily slunk back into the office, locking the door after him, and Thorndyke, having returned the box to the laboratory and deposited the cards bearing the fingerprints in a drawer, came round to inspect my work. I had managed to detach a tiny fragment of dried clot from the blood-stained garment, and this, in a drop of normal saline solution, I now had under the microscope. "'What do you make out, Jervis?' my colleague asked. "'Oval corpuscles with distinct nuclei,' I answered. "'Ah,' said Thorndyke, "'that will be good hearing for some poor devil. Have you measured them?' "'Yes, a long diameter, one to two thousand one hundred of an inch, short diameter about one to three thousand four hundred. Thorndyke reached down an indexed notebook from a shelf of reference volumes, and consulted a table of histological measurements. That would seem to be the blood of a pheasant, then, or it might more probably be that of a common fowl. He applied his eye to the microscope, and, fitting the eyepiece micrometer, verified my measurements. He was thus employed when a sharp tap was heard on the outer door, and, rising to open it, he admitted the superintendent. Oh, I see you are at work on my little problem, doctor, said the latter, glancing at the microscope what do you make of that stain it is the blood of a bird probably a pheasant or perhaps a common fowl the superintendent slapped his thigh well i'm hanged he exclaimed you're a regular wizard doctor that's what you are a fellow said he got that stain through handling a wounded pheasant and here you are able to tell us yes or no without it inter from us to help you oh you've done my little job for me sir and i'm much obliged to you now i'll carry out my part of the bargain he opened a handbag and drew forth a wooden frame and a blue foolscap envelope, and laid them with extreme care on the table. There you are, sir, said he, pointing to the frame. You will find Mr. Belfield's trademark very neatly executed, and in the envelope is the fingerprint sheet for comparison. Thorndike looked up the frame and examined it. It enclosed two sheets of glass, one being a portion of the window pane, and the other a cover glass to protect the fingerprints. Laying a sheet of white paper on the table, where the light was strongest, Thorndike held the frame over it, and gazed at the glass in silence, but with that faint lighting up of his impassive face which I knew so well, and which meant so much to me. I walked round, and looking over his shoulder, saw upon the glass the beautifully distinct imprints of four fingers and a thumb, the fingertips, in fact, of an open hand. After regarding the frame attentively for some time, Thorndyke produced from his pocket a little wash leather bag, from which he extracted a powerful doublet lens and with the aid of this, he again explored the fingerprints, dwelling especially upon the print of the forefinger. I don't think you'll find much amiss with those fingerprints, doctor, said the superintendent. They are as clear as if he made them on purpose. They are indeed, replied Thorndyke with an inscrutable smile, exactly as if he had made them on purpose, and how beautifully clean the glass is, as if he had polished it before making the impression. The superintendent glanced at Thorndyke with quick suspicion, but the smile had faded and given place to a wooden immobility in which nothing could be gleaned. When he examined the glass exhaustively, Thorndike drew the fingerprint form from its envelope and scanned it quickly, glancing repeatedly from the paper to the glass, and from the glass to the paper. At length he laid them both on the table, and, turning to the detective, looked him steadily in the face. I think, Miller, said he, that I can give you a hint. Indeed, sir, and what might that be? It is this. You are after the wrong man. The superintendent snorted. Not a loud snort, for that would be rude, and no officer could be more polite than Superintendent Miller. But it conveyed a protest which he speedily followed up in words. You don't mean to say that the prints on the glass are not the fingerprints of Frank Belfield? I say that those prints were not made by Frank Belfield, Thorndyke replied firmly. Do you admit, sir, that the fingerprints on the official form were made by him? I have no doubt that they were. Well, sir, Mr. Singleton of the fingerprint department has compared the prints on the glass with those on the form, and he says they are identical. And I've examined them, and I say they are identical. Exactly, said Thorndyke. And I have examined them, and I say they are identical, and that therefore those on the glass cannot have been made by Belfield. The superintendent snorted again, somewhat louder this time, and gazed at Thorndyke with wrinkled brows. You're not pulling my leg, I suppose, sir, so, he asked a little sourly. "'I should as soon think of tickling a porcupine,' Thorndyke answered with a suave smile. "'Well,' rejoined the bewildered detective, "'if I didn't know you, sir, I should say you were talking confounded nonsense. Perhaps you wouldn't mind explaining what you mean.' "'Supposing,' said Thorndyke, "'I make it clear to you that those prints on the window-pane were not made by Belfield. Would you still execute the warrant?' "'What do you think?' exclaimed Miller. "'Do you suppose we should go into court to have you come and knock the bottom out of our case like you did in that Ormby affair?' By the way, that was a fingerprint case, too, now come to think of it. And the superintendent suddenly became thoughtful. You have often complained, pursued Thorndyke, that I have withheld information from you and sprung unexpected evidence on you at the trial. Now I am going to take you into my confidence. When I have proved to you that this clue of yours is a false one, I shall expect you to let this poor devil Belfield go his way in peace. The superintendent grunted, a form of utterance that committed him to nothing. These prints, continued Thorndyke, taking up the frame once more, present several features of interest, one of which, at least, ought not to have escaped you and Mr. Singleton as it seems to have done. Just look at that thumb. The superintendent did so, and then pored over the official paper. Well, he said, I don't see anything the matter with it. It's exactly like the print on the paper. Of course it is, rejoined Thorndyke, and that is just the point. It ought not to be. The print of the thumb on the paper was taken separately from the fingers. And why? because it was impossible to take it at the same time. The thumb is in a different plane on the fingers when the hand is laid flat on any surface. At this window pane, for instance, the palmer surface of the fingers touch it, whereas it is the side of the thumb which comes in contact, and not the palmar surface. But in this, he tapped the framed glass with his finger, the prints show the palmer surface of all the five digits in contact at once, which is an impossibility. Just try to put your own thumb in that position, and you'll see that it is so. The detective spread out his hand on the table, and immediately perceived the truth of my colleague's statement. What does that prove, he asked. It proves that the thumbprint on the window pane was not made at the same time as the fingerprints, that it was added separately. And that fact seems to prove that the prints were not made accidentally, but as you ingeniously suggested just now, were put there for a purpose. I don't quite see the drift of all this, said the superintendent, rubbing the back of his head. Perplexedly, and you said a while back that the prints on the glass can't be Belfield's because they are identical with the prints on the form. Now that seems to me sheer nonsense, if you'll excuse my saying so. And yet, replied Thorndyke, it is the actual fact. Listen, these prints here he took up the official sheet were taken at Holloway six years ago. These, pointing to the framed glass, were made within the present week. The one is, as regards the ridge pattern, a perfect duplicate of the other. Is that not so? That is so, doctor, agreed the superintendent. Very well. Now suppose I were to tell you that within the last twelve months something had happened to Belfield that made an appreciable change in the ridge pattern on one of his fingers. But is such a thing possible? It is not only possible, but it has happened. I will show you. He brought forth from the drawer the cards on which Belfield had made his fingerprints and laid them before the detective. Observe the prints of the forefinger, he said, indicating them. There are a dozen in all, and you will notice in each a white line crossing the ridges and dividing them. That line is caused by a scar which has destroyed a portion of the ridges and is now an integral part of Belfield's fingerprint. And since no such blank line is to be seen in this print on the glass, in which the ridge appears perfect, as they were before the injury, it follows that the print should not have been made by Belfield's finger. There's no doubt about the injury, I suppose. None whatever. There is a scar to prove it and I can produce the surgeon who attended Bellfield at the time. The officer rubbed his head harder than before and regarded Thorndyke with puckered brows. This is a teaser, he growled. It is indeed. What you say, sir, sounds perfectly sound, and yet there are those fingerprints on the window glass. Now you can't get fingerprints without fingers, can you? Undoubtedly you can, said Thorndyke. I should have wanted to see that done before I could believe even you, sir, said Miller. You shall see it done now, was the calm rejoinder. You have evidently forgotten the Hornby case, the case of the red thumb mark, as the newspapers called it. Well, I only heard part of it, replied Miller, I didn't really follow the evidence in that. Well, I will show you a relic of that case, said Thorndyke. He unlocked a cabinet and took from one of the shelves a small box labelled Hornby, which, being opened, was seen to contain a folded paper, a little red-covered oblong book, and what looked like a large boxwood pawn. This little book, Thorndyke continued, is a thumbograph. A sort of fingerprint album. I dare say you know the kind of thing. The superintendent nodded contemptuously at the little volume. Now, while Dr. Jervis is finding us the print we want, I will run up to the laboratory for an inked slab. He handed me the little book, and as he left the room, I began to turn over the leaves, not without emotion, for it was this very thumbograph that first introduced me to my wife, as is related elsewhere. Glancing at the various prints above, the familiar names, and marvelling afresh at the endless variations of pattern that they displayed. At length I came upon two thumbprints, of which one, the left, was marked by a longitudinal white line, evidently the trace of a scar, and underneath them was written the signature Reuben Hornby. At this moment Thorndike re-entered the room, carrying the inked slab which he laid on the table, and seating himself between the superintendent and me, addressed the former. Now, Miller, here are two thumbprints made by a gentleman named Reuben Hornby. Just glance at the left one. It is a highly characteristic print. Yes, agreed Miller. One could swear to that from memory, I should think. Then look at this. Thorndyke took the paper from the box, and, unfolding it, handed it to the detective. It bore a penciled inscription, and on it were two blood smears, and a very distinct thumbprint in blood. What do you say to that thumbprint? Why, answered Miller, it's this one, of course, Reuben Hornby's left thumb. Wrong, my friend, said Thorndyke. It was made by an ingenious gentleman named Walter Hornby, whom you followed from the Old Bailey and lost on Ludgate Hill, but not with his thumb. How then? demanded the superintendent incredulously. In this way. Thorndyke took the boxwood pawn from its receptacle and pressed its flat base onto the inked slab, then lifted it and pressed it onto the back of a visiting card, and again raised it. And now the card was marked by a very distinct thumb print. "'My God!' exclaimed the detective, picking up the card and viewing it with a stare of dismay. "'This is the very devil, sir. "'This fairly knocks the bottom out of fingerprint identification. "'Why, I ask, sir, how you made that stamp. "'I suppose you did make it.' "'Yes, you made it here, and the process we used was practically that used by photo-engravers in making line-blocks. "'That is to say, we photographed one of Mr. Hornby's thumbprints, "'printed it on a plate of chrome gelatin, "'developed the plate with hot water, and this,' here he touched, the embossed surface of the stamp, is what remained. But we could have done it in various other ways, for instance, with common transfer paper and lithographic stone. Indeed, I assure you, Miller, that there is nothing easier to forge than a fingerprint, and it can be done with such perfection that the forger himself cannot tell his own forgery from a genuine original, even when they are placed side by side. "'Well, I'm mind,' grunted the superintendent. "You really not me this time, Doctor.' He rose gloomily and prepared to depart. I suppose, he added, your interest in this case has lapsed and now Belfield's out of it. Professionally, yes, but I am disposed to finish the case for my own satisfaction. I am quite curious as to who our too ingenious friend may be, Miller's face brightened. We shall give you every facility you know, and it reminds me that Singleton gave me these two photographs for you, one of the official paper one of the prints on the glass. Is there anything more that we can do for you? I should like to have a look at the room in which the murder took place. You'll show, Doctor, tomorrow, if you like. I'll meet you there in the morning at ten, if that will do. It would do excellently, Thorndyke assured him, and with this the superintendent took his departure in renewed spirits. We had only just closed the door when there came a hurried and urgent tapping upon it, whereupon I once more threw it open, and a quietly dressed woman in a thick veil, who was standing on the threshold, stepped quickly past me into the room. Where is my husband? she demanded as I closed the door, and then catching sight of Thorndyke, she strode up to him with a threatening air and a terrified but angry face. What have you done with my husband, sir? he repeated. Have you betrayed him? After giving your word, I met a man who looked like a police officer on the stairs. Your husband, Mrs. Belfield, is here and quite safe, replied Thorndyke. He has locked himself in that room, indicating the office. Mrs. Belfield darted across and rapped smartly at the door. "'Are you there, Frank?' she called. In immediate response, the key turned, the door opened, and Belfield emerged, looking very pale and worn. "'You have kept me a long time in there, sir,' he said. "'It took me a long time to prove to Superintendent Miller "'that he was after the wrong man. "'But I succeeded, and now, Belfield, you are free. "'The charge against you is withdrawn.' "'Belfield stood for a while, as one stupefied, "'while his wife, after a moment of silent amazement, flung her arms around his neck and burst into tears. "'But how did you know I was innocent, sir?' demanded the bewildered Belfield. "'Ah, how did I? Every man to his trade, you know. Well, I congratulate you, and now go home and have a square meal and get a good night's rest.' He shook hands with his clients, vainly endeavouring to prevent Mrs. Belfield from kissing his hand, and stood at the open door, listening until the sound of their retreating footsteps died away. A noble little woman, Jervis, said he, as he closed the door. In another moment she would have scratched my face, and I mean to find out the scoundrel who tried to wreck her happiness. End of section nine.